0: support for today's heat treat radio episode is provided by therm process 2023 the world's leading trade fair for industrial thermal processing technology learn more about the show at www.thermprocess-online.com and welcome to heat treat radio a podcast from heat treat today Whether you're listening to us or tuning in via video on heattreattoday.com forward slash radio, we're glad to have you. On the podcast, we tend to cover cutting-edge technologies for in-house heat treat, but today we're hearing about three of the most underrated heat treat processes and why these solutions shouldn't be neglected. As part of the Lunch and Learn series, podcast host and Heat Treat Today publisher Doug Glenn has brought many members from the team to learn. Alyssa Bootsma, Evelyn Thompson, Karen Ganser and myself chime in with questions for today's guest, Mike Muisseau, the general manager at Erie Steel, a metallurgical expert with significant experience in the automotive industry. Without any further ado, let's take a listen.
1: There are some underdog heat treat processes out here. Can you? Look, I'd like to get to three if we can today, so let's give us, what do you think? Number one, which one?
2: Let's start with stress relieving. So, all ferrous materials, all steels, if you're in, during the course of, of manufacturing or processing, they have some residual stress that is, that is left in them. So a common uh, thought about stress relieving, you have a weldment and you stress relieve it so that the weldment stays and it's not gonna move around. Um, So any cold working operation, a cold forging, stamping, fine planking, all of those things because it's done at ambient temperature, there's mechanical action in the material, those all impart stress on the parts. So machining, turning, grinding, all of those things impart stress into a part. So how is that relieved? Okay. It can be done thermally. It can also be done mechanically thermally is the most common of them. And what I would like to talk about is not so much stress relieving weldments as it is stress relieving manufactured components. So really, if you're gonna have a a comprehensive analysis of of the heat treating operation that needs to be performed on on a manufactured component, a gear, a shaft, something of that nature, then you need to take into consideration what are the prior existing stresses in the part? And then what effect is that going to have on the part? So many times during the course of my career, I've had a customer come to me and say, the part I gave you was correct. And you've given it back to me and then fill in the blank. It's warped, it's changed size, it's shrunk through all of those things. What have you done in your heat treating process? And really you have to back up all the way to the beginning of how this part was manufactured and deal with all of those component steps in order to answer that question properly. And stress relieving is one of the answers. It's not the answer, it's not the only answer, but it's one of them that has to be considered. So I got got a question for you.
1: We can jump in a little bit because for those of us who might not know what a stress is in a part, is it, can you simply explain, like, I'm going to give you an example. Tell me if this is even pertinent. A coat hanger, right? Yes. If I bend it or whatever, is that, is that
2: inducing stress? I mean, is that what's causing stress? What makes stress in the part? You've actually cold worked the part and in okay. cold working, you, what you are is you've, you've passed the yield strength. So you bent it and then it's, it's not going to snap back. So you cold worked it enough that you've actually got plastic deformation and there is stress. Okay, so that's one way we get stress. That's that's the mechanical way of getting stress in there. Right. Now, right. when it's stamping, think about even though a stamping is flat, because the die has come down in the perimeter of that, and maybe internal holes and in things where you've sheared the material, you've imparted stress there. Right. So those need. So if you harden it or case harden it or whatever you might do with that stamping. You have to take into consideration how much stress is there. And if I don't relieve it, is it going to do that at some point in the part's future that's going to be detrimental to the part? When you get a stress in a part, that's
1: the area, wherever that stress is, that's a weak spot, right? So
2: meaning it, it potentially could break before other parts, yes? So at the absolute extreme, that, that could happen, yes. Okay more often than not, what you have is that's an area that's been cold worked and and it's been deformed. So when it stresses, it's going to somewhat relieve itself. It may not relieve itself 100% all the way, but it will somewhat relieve. So whatever shape or form you've put that part into, it's not going to hold that form forever.
0: So Mike, you mentioned that it's not the only way to stress relieving is not the only way to alleviate the problems. What would be some alternatives to stress relieving? Sure, so
2: thermal stress relieving is by far the most common. There there is a process that's called vibratory stress relieving. So again, in order to relieve the stresses in a part, you have to impart some energy in it. So something between 800 and 1200 Fahrenheit is typically used in stress relieving, okay? So that thermal energy goes into the part and it relieves the stresses. You could also do that mechanically by a high frequency vibration. So that is used, it's not as common. Um, I I believe that it's actually a proprietary process if not patented, Um, but it is utilized because you'd wanna do that in something that you did not wanna subject to Eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit, or a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, because that doesn't come for free. Obviously, in a ferrous material, at that temperature, you're going to have some oxide forming on the part, and you may or not be able to utilize the part in its final function. You know, with that oxide on it. Those those are typically the two ways to do it. I mean, can it occur naturally over time? And the answer to that is yes, but yeah. none of us have that kind of time to. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we don't wanna wait to get rid of stress. I like talking about stress relieving. I need a little stress relieving. All right, anybody else?
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask one. So um,
2: you did mention how, and Doug was talking about how um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's more likely to break if it's um, uh, that part is not relieved, but um, what parts would suffer the most if this process was done incorrectly? probably weldments are are the, the detrimental effects of not having stress relieved a weldment would be the most significant. So if you think about it, when you're welding something, you're melting it so that you've got a whole range of temperatures proximate to the weld. Everything from room temperature at one end to where the weld is, you know, it's at 3000 degrees. So you have that whole range of things, and that changes the the structure of the steel. And if you would leave it in that condition, it could be susceptible to any number of things, embrittlement, accelerated corrosion, any number of things. So there's just, there's every reason to stress relieve something like that, and almost no reason not to. Yeah.
1: Is that, so that's weldment. Do they do stress relief
2: after braze as well, or is that not as common? So typically not, you know, the, and, and the reason for that is the entire, embracing, brazing the entire assembly is brought up to the same temperature and then it's cooled at the same rate. Gotcha, yeah, 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 that makes sense, that makes sense.
0: I have two kind of, I think, brief questions. The one is, how long does it stress relieving typically take? And the other is, would we see um, the effects of incorrect stress relieving or failure too, oh, in like the quenching side of things, when something goes to quench or.
2: So, so the first question, um, would you necess- necessarily see a failure? Those are, those would be extremes. I, okay. I'm more familiar with stress relieving fabricated components that are machined. So take a gear. So you take a, the gear is, they, they forge a blank and they may machine out the center of the gear. you will machine the, the exterior of the gear. You'll cut the teeth in a shaping operation. It could be a hobbing operation. Um, it could be skiving. There are a number of ways of generating teeth. So then you have this part and it's given to you to heat treat. So to assume that all of those machining operations would have no effect upon that whatsoever, not a good thought. So, in, when I said it's a, in a comprehensive program of evaluating how best to heat treat a part, and, and it doesn't matter if this gear that we're this theoretical gear, if we're just hardening it because it's out of a medium carbon alloy steel or it's a low alloy steel and we're going to carburize it, um, we're going to heat it up super critical. So, it's, it, the, the material is going to transform into austenite and then we're going to cool it very rapidly or quench it. And that's what's going to cause the the hardening operation on the part. In doing that, there are going to be changes in size. So in hardening a part, you get a volumetric expansion. Thin sections obviously are not going to expand as much as larger sections. So a, a misnomer is people say, well, you shrunk the hole. So you haven't shrunk the hole, it's that the material around the hole has expanded and the exterior portion of that area has increased and the interior portion of that is decreased. Okay, so if you have a spline in that hole, now you're on for something else because their teeth form in that spline. And if it's in a, in a, it's in a long section, then how uniform it's been hardened has to do with how, wh- whether or not it goes out of round or their taper, there are any number of things there. Those are all critical to the operation of this gear. But what we have to take into consideration is just the broaching operation. So we drill the hole and we put a broach bar through and cut all of these teeth. All of that has imparted stress in the part. So one of the preliminary things that needs to be done is you stress relieve the part, give it back to the manufacturer, and have them measure it. And they say, oh, oh, it changed. So that change, that's not something that the heat treater can do anything about. That's the physics of what happens when you work hard a part. So that has to be taken into consideration. And all of that has to be addressed before we talk about what's the heat treat distortion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did we get both parts of your question, Bethany?
0: Um, well, it? that part was so good that it doesn't even really matter. But the other part <laughs> was um,
2: okay. That there was
0: you but it was a, how long does it take to stress relief? Yes. Uh, yeah.
2: yeah. Um. So typically, if it's held at an hour or two at temperature, you know, the common commonly it's thought that a thousand degrees for an hour at temperature will relieve most stresses.
1: Okay.
2: Okay. Um, Now, in a in a component part, um, we're going to go just we're going to go higher in temperature, just because uh, although we're not going to go high enough to austenitize the part, we're going to go high enough in temperature that we know that we're going to relieve that. Yeah. Obviously, the difficulty is if it's done in air, the higher the temperature, the more scale that's formed. So you may want to do yeah. that in a, a protective atmosphere or a vacuum or something like that if it's a precision component.
1: Yeah, yeah, good. All right. I got it. I got another one for you, Mike. I'm just curious, Then we'll move on to number two because we don't want to spend all day on stress relieving. Although we could use it. What's the difference between stress relieving and like annealing? Right.
2: So stress relieving the the, the they're cousins. Let's just let's just start with their causes. Okay, stress relieving. The implication is that you are doing that simply to relieve prior existing stresses. In annealing, the implication is that you are going to reduce the hardness of the microstructure for the purposes of machining or forming. Okay, and then, and then there's annealing. There's subcritical and supercritical, and in a hundred different flavors of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
2: And would you say stress relieving is, last question.
1: Okay. Last question. Would you say stress relieving is probably, I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of what percentage of heat treating is stress relieving. I mean, is it really like super popular?
2: It seems to me it would be very common. So interestingly enough, um, I'm going to say that the majority of the gearing product that we do we incorporate a stress relief first, a stress relief in the initial stages of heat treating. Okay. Okay. So you're, it, by raising the temperature, by putting the part in and raising the temperature to a stress relieving temperature, and then taking it up into the austenitizing temperature, well, uh, you're not shocking the part by all of a sudden just taking it from room temperature to carburizing temperature or hardening temperature, and thereby you're reducing the thermal stresses. So you're not imparting anymore. Gotcha,
1: gotcha. All right. So it, it, so it's done. It, it may often stress relief may often be done as a part of another process. It can be definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. We'll put a cap. We'll put a period on that one. All right. Okay. Go on number two. What do you think? Second, uh, number a second,
2: mostly forgotten. Yeah, I don't know, forgotten, but I'm going to say that uh, that uh, it's getting short shrift, and that okay. is conventional atmosphere carburizing. So okay. you know what? Uh, what's sexy in heat treating, and it's low pressure carburizing and gas quenching, right? Yeah, and and it, you, it it's growing very rapidly, and it's being used in a lot of applications. Um, so interesting in this industry. Um, we're subject to the same ills that, that Mark Twain identified years ago. And that is, to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> okay. Yes. So yeah, uh, low pressure carb, rising, and gas quench is going to save every distortion issue that, that's ever been known to man in, in, in heat treating. Yeah. And it, it doesn't. It, it's another tool in the box. It's applicable to there, a lot of application. It's, it's a great process but it's targeted and it's specific. You know, sometimes you need a screwdriver instead of a hammer. Yeah. So conventional carburizing, it's, it's been around for a hundred years and you say, well, what's different today than what it ever was. And, and certainly it it has everything to do with the control systems that are being used to control it. And it's eminently more controllable now than it has ever been. And it is a precision operation and it has many applications. And by the way, it's far more cost effective than carburizing would be. So vacuum carburizing, you know, there's there's a multiple. Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? Depends on, you know, how you calculate cost of capital and and, and all of those things. But it's a multiple more expensive than conventional carburizing to do vacuum carburizing, vacuum carburizing. Gotcha. Okay. So should it be used in every application? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say right. no. Should it? Are there definite applications? There most definitely are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so conventional carburizing, atmosphere carburizing. Yeah. that the way? I guess that's what we say. It is yep. is another another largely forgotten. Let's say or not not doesn't get the. It's not largely forgotten. I know it's probably fair, quite popular, but it's not getting a lot of discussion this, uh, these days. Right. Okay.
2: All right. Anytime, Anybody- anytime there is a uh, an, an issue with the carburized part, yeah, everyone knows to ask the question: Why don't you vacuum carburize it? Yeah. And the answer to that is: How about if we solve the problem before we decide what it is that we need to do?
1: <laughs> yeah, get to the get right. That makes sense. That makes
0: sense. When we return. Mike will take a few questions about conventional carburizing before he shares the final most underrated heat treat process. But first, a word from our sponsors. Brace yourselves for a Therm Process 2023, a show that has a history of being four and a half times bigger in non-exhibiting attendee numbers than any North American heat treat trade show. Therm Process in Dusseldorf, Germany, is the world's most important platform for the presentation of highly innovative technology and environmental concepts for industrial thermal processing plants. From June 12th to 16th in 2023, attendees of Therm-Process will experience the innovations to come and those that will drive future moves. Therm-Process is part of the trade show quartet that happens every four years in Dusseldorf, Germany. The other events in the quartet are GIFA, Mitec, and Newcast. Climate neutrality by 2050 means that the industry faces an extreme transformation that will be discussed at the Dusseldorf Trade Fair Quartet, including the challenges that the sectors must overcome and the innovations that machinery and plant manufacturers will offer to enable climate solutions. Learn more about attending Therm Process at www.thermprocess-online.com. Again, that's www.thermprocess-online.com. Now back to the episode.
1: At a very basic level, can you explain, you know, why do heat treaters use endothermic gas?
2: Sure. So in, in atmosphere carburizing, we, we, need, we need a method of conveying carbon to the part so that we can enrich it. So that's what carburizing is. And in the, in the, the carburizing portion of the atmosphere in endothermic gas is carbon monoxide. So carbon okay. monoxide. That's the reaction at the surface of the part that, in, that carbon diffuses into the part and that's how you generate a case in the part. Um, so uh, it's it's a relatively inexpensive form of carburizing. So you use natural gas and air in what we call a generator and that's how endothermic gas is generated. And then it's put into the furnace in, there's almost no air in a, in a furnace. So people think that you're gonna look in a furnace and you're gonna see flame. You, you never do because there's the, the amount of oxygen in the furnace is measured in parts per million. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what you do is you also you put additional natural gas to boost the, the carburizing potential of the atmosphere. And that's what allows you to diffuse carbon into the part. And that is the case hardening process.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. So, so conventional carburizing is done in a protective atmosphere. Typically, that's an endothermic atmosphere, which is, which is rich in carbon monoxide. Yes. Okay. I got a question about that. I'm just kind of curious. So a lot of times we're worried about oxygen in the, in the process because of potential oxidation why is it (laughs) is maybe more of a chemical question anything why is it that we use a gas that has oxygen in it to to infuse carbon i know it's it's got carbon but it's also 1c10 right so
2: that's correct don't we run into problems of potential oxidation so the other thing that's in in endothermic gas is there's hydrogen nitrogen and carbon monoxide and then there's fractional percentages of carbon dioxide and and some other things so the hydrogen is what scrubs the part that's what kind of takes care of all of the excess oxygen gotcha the nitrogen is just a a carrier portion of it and the carbon monoxide is is what is the active ingredient if you will in the carburizing process so the carbon diffuses into the part if there's an oxygen Oxygen, it's not a molecule, right? Because it's elemental oxygen. It's going, right. going to combine with the hydrogen, right? Yeah, right. Okay. So preferentially, you you're not going to have any free, free oxygen, oxygen in the furnace, gotcha. but you can have a little water vapor. So one of the one of the ways of measuring the carbon potential in the furnace is a dew point meter. Uh-huh. And the dew point meter is measuring the, the, the temperature at which the gas right, it it precipitates out and you that's a a monitor or a measure of the carbon potential. Okay, that makes sense. Okay,
1: so a dew point analyzer helps you know what the carbon potential is. Yes. Okay, gotcha. All right, any other questions?
2: It's not as good as an oxygen analyzer. As an oxygen probe, yeah, okay. So the oxygen probe is in the furnace, it's in situ, it's measuring constantly and you get, you get a picture, you, get, you, you, you have continuous information. And right. it's not that there aren't continuous dew point analyzers, but you have to take a sample from the furnace. It has to be taken to an analyzer huh. wherein it is then tested. So gotcha. best case scenario, you have both of them and you compare the two of them and that gives you a really great picture of what the, the atmosphere conditions are in the furnace.
0: I had a question. Oh just for a bit of background knowledge, what is the difference between endothermic gas and exothermic gas? Sure.
2: Mm-hmm. So endothermic gas, as I said, it it, it has 40% of it is, is hydrogen, right? And, and 20% of it is carbon monoxide. So 60% of it is what you would call a reducing atmosphere. So it's okay. you, the way that you make endothermic atmospheres 2.7 parts of natural gas in one part of the air, and you heat it up to 1,900 degrees, and it's put through a, a nickel catalyst, and and you you strip off the hydrogens, and and the gas dissociates, and that's what that's what results from it. Exothermic gas is six parts of air and one part of natural gas.
1: Mm-hmm. So you only
2: have 10, 15 percent hydrogen. So although it, it, it still is, it, it's not an oxidizing atmosphere, but it's very mildly reducing. So it can be used in annealing. So in clean annealing. So at a temperature, if you're annealing at 12, 1300 degrees or, or, or more, or in that ballpark, that kind of an atmosphere is going to keep the work clean. If you did it in air, it
0: would scale.
1: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, good. Yeah, that makes sense. Bethany, looks like you wanted to ask a question.
0: If people are using this process, is there an industry, automotive, aerospace, energy, that it would be most helpful for those parts to be um, typical uh, car, um, atmosphere carburized in? Or is it just generally helpful for, for all um, types of industries?
2: Yeah. So first of all, the transportation industry is is the lion's share of, of heat treating, right? of a okay. component heat tree transportation, automotive, truck, you know, you might put aircraft into that, that sort of thing. Um, and and atmosphere carburizing is extremely popular and commonplace in those industries. I'm just saying that all the air in the room, if, if we said that we were going to have a seminar on you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about atmospheric carburizing and somebody else is going to talk about low pressure carburizing in a vacuum furnace. Everybody's going to go over to the other room because, because folks feel they already know what this is all about and they know what all the problems are and, and they think that the vacuum carburizing is going to solve all of them. Practice properly with the, the proper kinds of controls, the proper kind of furnace conditions, you know, the... the the right way of fixturing parts and cleaning them ahead of time, you can have extremely consistent results. You can have extremely clean parts. You can have very good performance from these things. Yeah. So what the Europeans call serial production, you know, we run millions of gears per year and we have very consistent case depths and hardnesses as a result of good practice. Yeah. So all of these things need to be monitored and controlled and taken care of. And the answer to all of those is yes. But the results are also very consistent and very predictable.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And, and it's more cost effective, I'm guessing, right? Conventional atmosphere carburizing is going to be on a per part basis, substantially less expensive.
2: Again, the, the, the number that I mean, we've looked at it and and it's, yeah. is it two times? Is it three times? Is it four times more expensive to vacuum carburize apart? And the answer is yes.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So the question is, does that, does that component justify that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there Very are hard. any number of them where it is.
1: Yeah, where it does, it does, it does. justify it.
2: Yeah, okay. It's absolutely.
1: Yeah, all right, fair enough. Anybody else, any other questions? Otherwise I wanna let Mike go on to number three. You're on. Number three. So number
2: three is mar quenching. So mar quenching. So mar quenching, mar tempering, and hot oil quenching are all kind of the family that describes this process. Okay. So mar tempering is opposed to just quenching in oil, quenching in regular fast oil. You know, it, it may be at a, at a, a regular oil is going to be a, 100 vis, and it's going to be from from 90 degrees to 150 degrees, and all kinds of low hardenability or, or parts that don't have a lot of inherent alloy in them, you utilize that so that they can be fully hardened. But components that are distortion critical, quenched in that manner in regular oil, there's going to be a high degree of distortion so how is that addressed and it's addressed in mark quenching so what the 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 thought behind mark quenching is this um, it, let's just take an example of a carburized gear okay so the carburized case is it's it's heated to 16 1700 degrees and carburized best practice would say that I'm gonna reduce the temperature before I quench it, and then I'm gonna quench it in oil. So do I understand that I have to have loading that spaces the parts and the parts need to be fixtured in such a way that um, physically they don't impede on each other and I get full flow of oil and, and, and all of those things. And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. But then in the quenching operation, how about if we, instead of quenching them down to 160 degrees, So the martensite starts to form in the case at, let's say, 450 and it's plus or minus some number, right? 25, 30 degrees, whatever. If we just take that part and just put it into the range where the martensite starts to form Mm -hmm. and we hold it at that temperature and we let the entire part cool down to that 450 degrees where the martensite is starting to form, then we remove the part from the furnace and allow it to cool in air to room temperature. So at, the, at that point, the cooling rate is much lower than it is obviously, than it's going to be where you're conducting that in the liquid medium. And because of that, the stresses are going to be less, the distortion is going to be less. So that is a, that's a strategy for reducing distortion. So why you say, well, why do you need to do that? So commonly, again, the man with the hammer, I'm gonna gas quench this part because I have the opportunity to gas quench it. And the gas quenching doesn't come for free. So the shadowing effects of, of a gas flow has to be taken into consideration. So orientation of the parts. There are a number of things that need to be taken into consideration. And I, I, The reason I bring this up is there are a number of applications where mark winching a part that the distortion can be controlled. I know for a fact that in, in we process a lot of gears and we maintain 20, 30 microns of total distortion in ID bores on flying gears.
1: Yeah,
2: it is a viable way of of controlling distortion.
1: Yeah, yeah. So mar, we say mar quenching or mar, yeah, mar quenching, right? Or mar tempering or hot oil quenching, right? So the mar part of that comes from martensite. I mean, are we basically saying is that is that where? And then I want to explain. Maybe have you explain, or I'll try to explain what exactly martensite is so that so that it's understandable but is that where it comes from mark quenching mark
2: tempering we're getting right into the the start of the martensite transformation
1: yeah okay so i i like to uh, this is just for my own personal edification so check me on this tell me this is going to be very layman's terms okay so there there are different microstructures in metals right austenite is what i'm going to call it's the highest pretty much the highest temperature and it's where the molecules are almost i'm going to say they're free floating right they're all they're not liquid but they're free floating they can move around again remember this is very this is very layman terms so for everybody that's austenite so when we talk about taking a product up to austenitic temperature that means you're going up pretty high temperature so that things are kind of the molecules are flowing around What causes distortion is when you're cooling from austenite down to the point where that thing is kind of locked in. That can cause distortion in there because the molecules are still free to move. Some cool faster, some areas cool faster than others. And when you have that, you can get twists and turns or bulges or whatever. Once it gets down to the martensite temperature, that's when things are kind of locked in. Is that fair, Mike? Is that a.
2: So the other thing that happens is you're going from a cubic structure to a tetragonal structure, and <laughs> you're saying, yeah. why, are we, why are we there? So that's where the, the expansion comes, because the close-packed tetragonal structure takes up more volume than yeah. the austenitic or cubic structure would take up. Yeah. That's where the volumetric expansion takes place. Right. Right, which yeah, okay, that yeah, those
1: words are difficult words, but yes, it's right. At a higher temperature, the molecules are arranged in such a way that they take up more space. Or there's more space between them, if you will. If that's probably not accurate either, but anyhow, the point being, if you can quench, if you can, in the cooling process with Mark quenching, if you bring it down just to the point where it's just what what Mike referred to as the martensite start temperature. That's just that temperature where things are just locking in but it's not so drastic that you're dropping it way down in temperature so that there's great larger temperature differentials and things are really starting to get torqued out of contortion because of the difference in the in the cooling rates between the in the part so I don't know I don't know if that
2: helps everybody but (laughs) so the other part of that is that the formation of martensite is not time dependent so it's not like you would have to hold it at 400 degrees for a longer period of time than you would at 200 degrees to get martensite at 400 degrees. You've got some percentage of, of transformation, say it's 30%. And then, so this, the transformation is temperature dependent. Yeah. So because it's temperature dependent, if you could take it out and slow down the cooling rate, then as the transformation takes place, there's less stress. And if there's less stress, then there is less distortion. Less distortion, yeah. So again, it, it's typically going to be distortion-sensitive parts, Yeah. And, and distortion. So if you have a very, the, the simplest geometric shape is a sphere, OK? okay. So um, there aren't any changes in section size in a sphere, right? It can be yeah. rotated, any, and you've got the same section size. So you don't have um, the kind of thing where one area is cooling more rapidly than another. Hmm. So a major source of distortion, like a hole in a block, in one portion of the block is two inches wide and the other, another portion is an inch wide. To think that that hole is going to stay straight all by itself, that won't happen because there's more mass around one end. So by quenching it and slowing down the transformation, you're giving yourself an opportunity to reduce the amount of stress that's generated. It's the volumetric expansion in, in the thicker section than in the thinner section. And your, your opportunity to maintain that hole so that it stays round and it stays straight is much better. Yeah. Because otherwise the thin section is going to, completely transformed before the thicker section does right transformed to martin site or whatever yeah so the extreme case in that is if that happens rapidly enough and there's a large enough change, uh, differential in section size the part cracks
1: yeah 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 that's the
2: nightmare for the heat treater
1: and it's always your fault of course
0: of course <laughs> Are there any instances when like that it's, where it's definite that another um, way to, to manage distortion would be better than more quenching?
2: Sure. So again, what's currently sexy in this industry is, is gas quenching things, okay? And I'm going to say that cylindrical parts, so in, in cylindrical parts that have a thin wall, okay when properly gas quenched will give you better distortion control better size control than it would if you quench them in a liquid medium such mm-hmm. as oil and we we don't want to forget the fact that that mark quenching can be performed in salt as well
1: mm-hmm, and mm-hmm,
2: there's some right. some real some real opportunities um you know with this that you know that might if we're going to talk about a fourth one it might be salt quenching because that's one of those things that's not commonly utilized and there's some real opportunity with it. Mike, thanks for, thanks
1: for dumbing this down for us. We appreciate it. (laughs) It's sometimes a struggle to, to, you know, make it state things simply, but you did a great job and I appreciate it. Is there anything, any other thoughts, closing thoughts you'd like to leave with us regarding, you know, the, 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 uh, nearly forgotten, Popular
2: <laughs> heat treat processes or anything else? So how about the combination of all three that I just spoke about? Okay. Well, how okay. about that? So, so I've got a distortion sensitive gear and we've we figured out that uh, that um, there, there is some stress in the part as, as a result of the final machining operation. Okay. So we stress relieve the part, we carburize it conventionally, and then we marquench it. So those gears right. that I spoke about where we've got 20 or 30 microns of ID bore distortion. Yeah. That's exactly what's done there. Okay. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Stress relief first.
1: Conventional carburize and then Mark wench. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Combination of three. All right. Very good. Well, that, that I think that's great. Mike, thank you very much. I think it's, My it's pleasure. really helpful. It's been, been good to learn a little bit on a lunch and learn. Uh, we'll hope, hope to have you back sometime to explain other, make other things understandable for us. So thanks very much. Very Appreciate good. it.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode with Mike Moiseo. Heat Treat Radio is on Spotify, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and the website www.heattreattoday.com forward slash radio. Do you have a new or interesting idea that you want to hear discussed on Heat Treat Radio? As always, let me know. Also, if you'd like to be a sponsor of a future episode, you can let me know at bethany at heattreattoday.com. Heat Treat Radio would like to thank Therm Process 2023 for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about the show at www.thermprocess-online.com. This and every other episode of Heat Treat Radio is the sole property of Heat Treat Today and may not be reproduced in part or in whole without advanced written permission from Heat Treat Today. And I'm Bethany Leone.